0: Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Grand Challenge Lecture and features Professor Kate Jones. Kate Jones is Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity at University College London. Her research investigates the interface of ecological and human health, using statistical and mathematical modelling to understand the impact of global land use and climate change on ecological and human systems. Kate has written more than 100 articles and book chapters in prestigious journals such as Nature and Science. She is a scientific advisor for several international biodiversity charities and has chaired the BATS Conservation Trust in the UK for nine years. Her lecture recorded on Friday the 12th of April is entitled, Our Planet, Our Health. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge lecture.
1: So thank you very, very much for the invitation to come and talk. And uh, the invitation to come to Brisbane. It's a fantastic, fantastic city. And I may actually have to just move here from London after. So um, nobody is to ask me anything about Brexit (laughs) in any way, uh, in any of the questions (laughs) afterwards. Okay, so we live longer and more prosperous lives than ever before. And we've made huge advances to create better lives for. For billions of people but but at what cost and this very uncomfortable and disturbing image behind me is one of the finalists of the uh, BBC wildlife photographer of the year award a couple of years ago and it was taken off the coast of Indonesia and it was a diver who um was taking a beautiful picture of this seahorse curled over a, a front of uh, seagrass and there was a massive sewage outflow from, from the coast and uh these, all these bits of plastic came and uh, this is what happened. It curled over the, uh, the, the cotton bud instead, which is nice. So um, this kind of illustrates our intimate links between you know, uh, our health of our, our disrupting ecosystems and, and the impacts on our planet. Now, in this lecture, I, I want to go further than that and I want to talk about how, uh, the, what the links are and the interdependencies are between the health of our planet and our health, particularly focusing on my work on emerging infectious diseases. So how how does changing, rapid environmental change, how does that change the likelihood of zoonotic diseases like Ebola or SARS emerging and then being transmitted into the human population? I'd also like to talk about some of the new technologies which are Uh, becoming um, more widespread in terms of AI and machine learning and also new satellite imagery and high-resolution satellite imagery, which can help us develop and understand these relationships and perhaps start to think about how to develop those into an early warning system for humanity to manage and prevent these diseases spreading and become epidemics. So um, I, I really try to argue that there are intimate links between our planet and our health. And um, I, I really call for a, a better management of our planet and a, 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 more, a, a finer understanding of those interdependencies to manage, to manage it better, manage both, both our health and our planet. Okay, so if that sounds really depressing, some of it is a bit depressing, um, I end on reasons to be cheerful. So, Okay. <laughs> okay, so the world um, has undergone a rapid change. So 200 years ago, uh, it, was, it was pretty different. So um, the population was pretty stable, and it had been for most of human history. Um, but around 1900s, we had something called the Great Acceleration, which meant a massive increase in population growth rate of humans and um, peak baby was kind of um, around 1980 1970 1980 where the growth rate was was really really high and it's subsequently fallen so this red line is growth rate and it's thought that uh, populations were kept in check by high childhood mortality among other things and now they're kind of kept in check by low birth rates so that we have fewer babies now than we have before, and that's probably linked to um, women's education and global development. So we're supposed to tip out about 11 billion people in 2100. So the world is changing rapidly, and it's not just the human population, but uh, the last 50 years has seen a huge increase in um, GDP growth, so a reduction in poverty. So that's been a hugely good news story for humanity, that we have fewer people living in poverty than ever before. Um, we have also done uh, other things which are not so great. So our, this is per capita, so, and this is from a baseline of 1950. Um, so we've also got CO2 emissions increasing, but also we're eating more meat, uh, using more fertilizer. Uh, our fresh water use is decreasing, that we have less of it per unit land and we've got um, per, uh, less agricultural land because there's more people and it's per capita so if you want to have a play with these numbers yourself this is from o- our world in data WHO and it's amazing so you should have a, have a look and, and play with those bits of, uh, bits of data okay so what has that done for our health well largely it's been an amazing good news story for humanity it's It's been amazing. So the number of deaths from all causes has dropped substantially, mostly across the continents, all continents. So um, it's been a really good news story for humanity. And most diseases have dropped. So malaria has dropped. Protein energy malnutrition has dropped. So people have got enough food to eat. Um, And diarrheal disease, which is a, a, a disease of poverty, really, has uh, massively dropped. So it's a really great news story. However, this is not all good news, as some diseases, uh, some, some trends have, ha, are showing an increase. So some of these trends are linked to climate. So um, dengue is a disease which is a vector-borne disease, so it's transmitted by uh, insects, and it um, likes warm, wet conditions. You've got uh, skin cancer uh, and heat and cold exposure, extreme events, causing these um, trends to increase. So you've got also um, forces of nature, catastrophic events causing these problems. So this, um, these patterns, which were from the WHO, they um, prompted a lot of the development community to take notice, especially the, um, especially the medics. So um, I don't know if there's any medics in the room, but um, one of the leading med- um, medical journals in the world, The Lancet, based in London, uh, recognized the importance of climate change on human health and set up a commission to have a look at that with some UCL colleagues, actually. So they published this in 2017. And they, this is really important because the first, this is the first time that the medical community global development community, realized that there was an environmental problem which was impacting humans. So this is a really important first step. Climate change and human health are correlated, and it's a good way to get the medics on board to understanding the linkages between our planet and our health. Uh, This uh, visualization is by Ed Hawkins. He won a prize for this, and you should go and have a look at his stuff. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, but it's showing global temperature change over the last few hundred years. So it's, it is quite extraordinary. Okay, so it's not just climate that's changing. We're doing other things as well. So, uh, and this is much more poorly understood about how this affects human health and well-being. And that's land use change. So we have had an extraordinary transformation of our planet over the last few hundred years. And if you look at this kind of global surface area allocation for food production for the planet, you've got um, about 30% of all of the area on the planet is land, and three-quarters of that land is habitable, and over half of that, three-quarters, is used for agriculture. Um, And then three-quarters of all agricultural land is used for for livestock, which is, is a bit crazy. Um, And then if you look at the amount of appropriation by humans of net primary productivity, in some areas it's it's 100%. So we're using all of the energy from the sun for our own use. And that's, you know, it's quite spatially um, heterogeneous across the the landscape. But we're causing, we've uh, caused the transformation of of the planet at at a really large scale. So this is a bit depressing, this bit, so just bear with me, bear with me. Okay, so what's, what's ha- what effect has that had? Well, it's had a massive impact on our cultural and uh, our levels of biodiversity on this planet. So culturally, I'm just going to touch on this first. This is by a colleague of mine, um, Jonathan Lowe, and his colleague, David Harmon, who looked at the amount of uh, endangered languages there are. And languages are put into different families like taxonomy and they've mapped out, using the IUCN criteria, the red listing criteria, which, which species, which languages are more threatened than others. So this has happened over the last 100 years or so, that these, these languages are, are, these language families have got lots of languages which are now endangered. So a specific hotspot is here in, in Australia, but also other areas in, in North Africa and, and in South America. So it's had a big impact on, on human culture as well as uh, biological culture, so biodiversity. So this is a, a fantastic... Um, I got this from a fantastic web- website. So Joel, Joel Satori is trying to um, photograph every critically endangered species on the planet. So he's got quite a lot, long way to go, but this, these are all endangered species. So I thought I'd show you... A really nice picture of of, uh, of critically endangered species it's a bit depressing. So this is uh, it's, so the land conversion has caused um, our, our our populations of, of of wildlife to decrease. And this is um, a slide taken from Stuart Butchart's paper in 2010, and it just gives you a kind of state of nature dashboard. So it's a bit like having lots of stocks and shares, and you can see you know, where we are with the status of of the planet. So this is the state of nature here in the yellow. And these are the pressures on nature. And the green is our kind of responses. And these are the kind of benefits that we get from nature. So we're having, um, from from all of the kind of monitoring programs that we have globally, there is a lot of evidence that we're having a huge impact on the amount of uh, population abundance and the number of species that are on the planet. The pressures that we're putting on biodiversity are also increasing, uh, and the benefits that we're getting from nature-like fish stocks, for example, um, sustainable fish stocks, are decreasing. But our responses are increasing, so we're, we're recognising that these are our issues. So if that was just a bit too esoteric, these are some of my favourite species, and um, there's I don't know about that one because it's had a recent increase, but there's probably more of you in this room than there are of them definitely this one which has been declared extinct the last 10 years okay so does it does it really uh matter that we're losing these species How, does it what, what's the link between losing species and human health and that's a really good question and it's really underexplored in comparison to some of the focus that they're The medical community has put on the climate change. And and this is really interesting to me, and and that's one of the areas I've been exploring over the last few years. So this image is from just one of the many, but it's an infographic to show you how, how possibly how biodiversity is linked to human health and well-being. So this is from the UK National Ecosystem Assessment in 2011, uh, where everything on the, in the country was assessed in terms of this kind of natural capital accounting framework, um, but there are lots and lots of these, and uh, I' just show you this one for reference. So just think about oh, and there 's loads of other things down here that you can look at. Okay, so all biodiversity, at air, land, water, all living things are in the green box, it's handy? And then uh, these are all uh, in ecosystems. they 're interacting in an ecosystem. And at some point, there are, there are some ecosystem services from those ecosystems. So, for example, it could be pollination of crops. And the, the goods are the crops which um, are being produced from that system. And then that has an impact on our human well-being in terms of economic value, health value, or shared cultural value. And if you have any change in that system... Uh, you have a feedback loop which changes the ecosystem services, changes the goods, and changes our human health and well being so there 's a, a lot of evidence that 's growing to show that, that these these are relationships which are really important for health but ha- how do how do they actually work how, how does How does changing ecosystems impact human health okay so this is a kind of expansion of of that first slide, and this is kind of putting it into ecosystem processes, the final ecosystem service, and the goods, and then some kind of valuation of economic health and shared value, shared social ecological value. And, um, you know, you can kind of go through these to see what those linkages are. But this is it's quite woolly, and, and, and getting the information and the evidence to support these, these interactions is quite hard. So I've been particularly interested in infectious diseases and how ecosystems are regulating or not regulating infectious diseases. And and I've kind of highlighted these kind of processes in in a lovely purple. So you have got ecological interactions, evolutionary processes in this kind of process part of this, this graph. And then you've got disease and pest regulation as a final ecosystem service. And the goods are kind of disease prevention, pest control, natural medicine. So I've been really interested in understanding how this could work. Is there any evidence for this? And and how could you make, how could you turn this into a predictive model? So, how could you understand what these linkages are to make a a kind of forecasting model for the future? Okay, so infectious diseases are a a huge burden on humanity, on our global health systems. Uh, This is just some estimated costs of some of the outbreaks which have, uh, have um, happened over the last uh, 20, 30 years or so, um, and with Zika and Ebola in West Africa in 2015 just being some of the latest examples. So they've got really big impacts, so things like SARS and Ebola and H1N1, uh, swine flu, and there's a Newcastle disease down here, which sounds intriguing. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Okay, so a lot of infectious diseases, uh, about two-thirds of infectious diseases are from animals. So this means that they have an animal reservoir host or a, or a vector. And um, trying to understand, like this one in, in, uh, in Sierra Leone in 2015, so the host was thought to be uh, some fruit bats, which, started the, uh, which uh, transferred Ebola onto the human population that started the, the outbreak. So um, as... Uh, a lot of these reservoir hosts are in ecological communities, you could imagine that anything that's changing the ecology, anything that's disrupting those ecosystem processes, will impact our exposure to these diseases and our risk of an emerging event. So that's a really interesting idea that you could perhaps regulate the outbreaks of these diseases by changing our management of the ecosystem. So um, what we've been trying to think about is like how, well, it's, it's a really powerful idea. Like, it could be that you could protect these areas and you could stop and manage and stop these epidemics. And that's a really a powerful, a powerful argument for conservation, but also for uh, managing our planet better. And it also might mean that we can predict what's going to happen next, which is a really hard thing to do for epidemic outbreaks for infectious disease outbreaks. Okay, so what's the evidence that this actually works? Well, it's really patchy and um, controversial, so it's a bit conflicting at the moment. So uh, this is a paper I did a very long time ago now, uh, but I was trying to show... I was trying to understand what drives the first emergence of an infectious disease. So I plotted the first time that any infectious disease... outbreaks into the human population. And I correlated that with the effort that you put into actually finding it. But then also um, human population density, human population growth, something about the environment and something about the biodiversity. So I was was finding a positive relationship between the number of outbreaks and how much biodiversity you have. So that's like, like biodiversity itself uh, when you add, add a load of humans to it <laughs> and it, that interaction, you get these emerging infectious diseases, and these are hotspots, and you can use that to predict where the next hotspots were. So that's not a good news story for conservation. That is, a, if you put humans and animals together, you're going to get these outbreaks. However, um, other studies have talked about this dilution effect, where um, you have uh, more... um, damaged ecosystems with less biodiversity um, have this kind of concentrating effect on the the species which are then present. So those species are more likely to um, then spread that disease, be more abundant, and then more likely to spread that disease into human population. So this dilution effect, biodiversity has a dilution effect so that you... um, have more biodiversity, you have less of a chance of getting a disease. So these are really confusing things. Like they seem to be completely contradictory. And I think the problem, and and this is what I wanted to explore, is that biodiversity per se isn't helpful in this situation. Like having a dilution effect of biodiversity or uh, a, a, an increasing risk as of biodiversity isn't helpful. And it's really reductive. It's so reductive, not to be useful. And I think. The problem really is that it's about species identity, and I've kind of illustrated it here with this, this figure. So this is um, the poster child of the dilution effect um, idea, where you've got um, an environment which is, um, has got uh, Lyme disease in it. So Lyme disease is, is a vector of Lyme disease is black-legged tick. And um, when you've got white-footed mice and opossums, they have a different way of of treating these ticks. So when opossums are present, the ticks are groomed off and you get less Lyme disease in the system. Um, When um, you've got white-footed mice present, less of them are groomed off and and eaten and you get more in the system. And it just so happens that when you um, disturb an area, you'll get the possums are the first ones to go from that system, and you get many more white-footed mice. So that was an idea for the dilution effect, uh, so that if you destroy the system, you get rid of the biodiversity that's providing the dilution effect, and it's concentrated in one species. However, I think it's much more to do with the response of these animals to disturbance than it is about biodiversity in general, which would make much more sense. So I wanted to explore some of these ideas in a collaboration we did um, a couple of years ago now, and this is the the, the work I'm going to talk about now is from uh, some of the amazing postdocs on the on the project, uh, and um, and some old old farts which that <laughs> we, we, we were PIs on the project. So um, this is a, a big collaboration funded by UK uh, the Development Office in the UK and NERC and a few other other um, agencies. So we wanted to look at a number of different diseases in Africa and understand how changing biodiversity and changing the environment, what effect it had on disease emergence and and spread. So I'm going to talk about a few of these and then kind of wrap up with some general observations. Okay, so the first one we did is Lassa fever. So Lassa fever is uh, like the poor cousin of Ebola, it's a hemorrhagic fever that you know, nobody's heard of, it probably causes and has caused more mortalities and morbidity than Ebola ever has. So it's a major cause of morbidity and mortality in West Africa. There are between 100,000 and a million cases a year. And I give you that wide wide confidence interval on purpose because it's so understudied. So we may be looking at a million cases a year in West Africa or 100,000 because it's so poorly understood. So this is a hemorrhagic fever. Its uh, host is uh, very cute, Mastomys saliensis, white um, multi-mammate rat, and um, it's found throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. It's an agricultural pest, and the, and the, the way that people get Lassa fever is from uh, urine and faeces from, from these rats uh, going into um, area, agricultural areas, And uh, where there's there's poor food sanitation security, you'll get some spillovers. So the first problem that we had was that we couldn't really explain the distribution of Lassa fever cases, which are in in the black dots, with the distribution of the host. So if I'm trying to think about how does environmental change and changing the host change Lassa fever outbreaks, then I've got a massive problem because I can't even explain why Lassa fever is even in West Africa why isn't it in all of sub-saharan Africa okay so that was the first thing and you know that it's a really good disease because it's got its own book so that's it that always always a tell that is amazing actually it's an amazing disease uh, but also horrendous so the first thing that we did was um, get some samples of the different uh, hosts so we got from GenBank but also we sent people out to Sierra Leone to have a look at what was going on phylogenetically with these, this group. So it turns out it's not one species at all. It's probably three, if not more. So um, the branch lengths on these, these divisions here, so this is a phylogeny just explaining how related these different clades are. So these ages of these clades are older than Lassa fever's next most related pathogen, so sister taxa. So it means that Lassa fever has evolved in this clade completely independently of any of these others. So that would explain what we have a restricted distribution is because Lassa has evolved in this West African clade. That might mean that it can actually spread to these other populations, but nobody's done those experiments and we don't know. Okay, so that was one thing. So we wanted to see, okay, well, can we start to predict where Lassa fever is? So we used... um, uh, we wanted to, to look at um, all the remote sensing data that we could get to try to predict where, wh- well, could we predict where lasser cases were? So we use a statistical and dynamic modeling approach and machine learning approach to kind of map the ecological niche of this disease. So here, say, are all of the uh, lasser cases. And then you have lots and lots of environmental layers, some uh, clever maths, and then some spatial predictions about where, We haven't sampled, but what's the the risk of getting a case? So this is a kind of standard approach in um, spatial epidemiology. So we're using the observed data and the observed relationships with those data, with the environment, to then make a spatial prediction about where we haven't sampled, but where we uh, would like to know about. Okay, so we use the absolutely incredible, amazing data from the European Space Agency from the Copernicus satellite systems and the Sentinel satellites. so these are uh, amazing, <laughs> incredible, free uh, data sets at incredible resolutions. So this one's at 10 meters, and a lot of them are at 30 meters resolutions, and you can, and they're at every three days. So you can tell flooding events, so this is in Italy, a flooding event in Italy, which um, they could spot, you can, and you can watch crops actually grow. so um, because Europe is above Africa, um, all the Africa data is also there. So it, it meant that we could really use this in our analysis. So absolutely incredible. That's re- one reason why UK shouldn't go out of the European Union. <laughs> 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 uh, okay. So um, okay. So what did we find? Okay. So we've got the the dots here being lasser cases that we could find, and then we've got all of the remote sensing data to make a prediction and um, more suitable habitats in the darker green. So we've got you know a fairly good fit to our observed data and we've got this being the most um, predictive uh, variable which is where the hosts are. So we also did the same thing for host distributions. So host distributions and host suitability of the landscape is a really good predictor of where we're going to get these cases. It sounds really obvious but uh, this is the first time that anyone had done it this scale. Also, human population density and annual precipitation and crop yield. So, rice crops are particularly important. So, it means you can start making predictions. However, there's a massive problem here in that the samples of Lassa, and I told you about the 100,000 to a million cases per year, we hardly know anything about Lassa, And so, these data are really biased. And you can start picking it out because this is the only... Lassa Hospital in Sierra Leone. Uh, it was developed by the U.S. Um, a few years ago, and, that, and that's where a lot of the cases are. And these are, these are in Buja, Iradi. These are all uh, case hospitals in Nigeria. So we've got a massive problem, and, and I didn't feel that this was a, way, a good way to model diseases and make predictive models of diseases. So I started to think about a much more mechanistic understanding of this disease? And how could you merge a mechanistic understanding with this landscape West African approach? So I turn to the amazing epidemiologists, which have been doing this for centuries now, I think. So um, some of you are epidemiologists epidemiologists in the audience, so uh, I won't belabor this, but um, there are lots of ways to model how a disease moves through a human population. And this one I'm showing you here is called a compartmental model. So you have um, susceptible people here in this box. And then you get a disease and you become infectious. infected, And then you, you kind of, you know, recover or you get removed from the system, i.e. you die. And you have different kind of flavors of these it's exposed and infectious and recovered. And this is um, a really traditional way of modeling how a disease goes through the population. So say I had Ebola... I've got Ebola, don't worry, I don't really have. And all this section here, I I sneeze or something, bleed from my eyes, I don't know, whatever you do when you've got Ebola. Now you're all not, you're not, you are now, you are all susceptible and now you're infectious. And then some of you will infect other people and then some of you are just gonna drop down dead. So you'll be out of this system. So this is how a disease, a pathogen will move through a human population. So you can use these kind of rates of transfer to think about how Lassa fever might move through a population. But the trouble with these models is that they're really computationally intensive and they're not really explicitly spatial. So you you can do it for this kind of area, maybe for a town, but there's no kind of intrinsic spatial process going on in here. So you can kind of set the parameters up and let it go. So what I wanted to do was mash this up with my more kind of spatial modeling approach. So what we did is cut up West Africa into tiny grid squares, about a kilometer each, and we had a model, this uh, very simple SI model. So Lassa is a dead-end host, so a uh, pathogen, so it goes from the mastomis into the human, and then there's very, very little human-to-human transfer. So it's quite simple. So that we tried to think about susceptible people in each grid square and uh, the rate of transfer spillover to, infectious, to, to be infectious. And we parameterized this with satellite data on how many humans there were, the suitability of the landscape for the host, and then we had a simple kind of gas model for interactions between, uh, which is here, uh, between animal, the animals and, and uh, humans. And so we ran this millions of times, broke the UCL computer, um, but... Uh, but, and just, just to emphasize that there were no data in here on actual cases, right? So no spatial locations of cases. We just generated this from first principles about how the, where the animals are, humans are, how these processes may interact. Uh, and we came up with this model, which is actually possibly a better estimate of where the risk for LASA is. Uh, and it's not a good fit to the cases, but we think it's probably much more accurate given the uh, biases in these sets. So we've been using this approach, and uh, we went to talk to the CDC in Nigeria. Uh, So this is uh, Chikwe, who is one of our close colleagues now. So he runs the CDC in uh, Nigeria, and uh, this this happened in 2018. They had a massive outbreak of Lassa fever in Nigeria, and we worked with them to understand what exactly was happening. So... um, if you look at the outbreaks, this is from 2018, sitrep reports. It's a much better fit to our statistical mechanistic model than it is to our statistical model. So we've been working with them, and I don't know whether you have seen this in the news. It was in it had a full-page spread in Nature a couple of weeks ago because it's so amazing. But he set up the first CDC that starts to monitor um, regularly all the infectious diseases in, in West Africa in Nigeria. And this is the first data set for Lassa fever that's ever been collected in this, in this rigor. So we've been using these data to start to use a statistical mechanistic model to understand and predict future outbreaks. So this is a forecasting model now using the outbreaks that they've been collecting over the last, since 2012 to make a prediction about 2019. All right, so, um, so this is uh, currently in prep, but... Um, this is really interesting. So this is our, our, our observe line, and what we're probably finding out that the outbreak that they got reported in 2018 was uh, probably reporting effort, not that there was a massive outbreak because of environmental reasons or the host reasons. It was probably because they they put more effort in look, for looking, um, and uh, th- this is completely underreported here. Um, and this one is really interesting in that we've got. Um, the Ebola outbreak happening in 2015, and nobody went into the hospitals because they thought they were going to get Ebola. So it did happen. It's just that there were no reports. So we've been looking at, at, at this model so we can forecast four months in a he- ahead because it's due to the cycles of, of rainfall as well as other things. So we're working with the CDC now to think about how they can actually use that for uh, management of the system. So um, this seems to be working unfortunately, seems to be working out uh, more uh, accurately our prediction. So they have had a massive spike in the last few months in in Nigeria. So hopefully we we can work on that and get that to be a more predictive model. Okay, so when we were collecting data for Lassa fever, uh, Lena Moses was leading the team in Sierra Leone. And then 2015, when she was there, 2014, uh, Ebola happened. And uh, she's one of my scientific heroes, for many reasons, actually. She's my hero. She stayed in in Sierra Leone uh, because she's an epidemiologist, serologist. She stayed in Sierra Leone and uh, helped with the epidemic. So she stayed there throughout the whole period to help. So we thought about Ebola, and and Ebola turns out to be incredibly interesting, uh, but actually much more complicated because it's a human to human uh, transmission. So, okay, we've got humans in this mix now, so how do you put humans in the mix as well as the animals? And so that did my head in, so I had to do a, uh, a diagram <laughs> of how I thought that might help, or how it might work. So you've got all of Earth here in the yellow, and then you've got some subset of that is the host niche. So whatever the reservoir host is of Ebola, and that's debated, um, you've got some kind of subset of the physical environment You've got some subset of the infected host, uh, sorry some subset of the host niche uh, some of those hosts are infected so it's a subset of that. And then you've got the humans, which are very complicated uh, and then you've got some kind of spillover effect going on here to do with contact rates and then you've got contact rates being infected, uh, by, impacted by healthcare and immunity but also you've got movement of, of human populations in and out of the system. And then to top all that off, you've got any changes in government stability, corruption, healthcare, infrastructure, food, climate, land use, impacting on every single one of these, these boxes. So actually, it's, it's a really complex system to model. And you can't really do it without thinking about systems dynamics. And that's what I would, would strongly argue for, is that you need a systems a dynamics approach to look at predictions in a, in a changing system, a rapidly changing system. So, the first thing that we did was map out spatially, spatial predictions for the hosts, and you can argue with me about what the hosts are and what the secondary and primary hosts are, and we can talk about WASPs if you want, but um, this is what we chose as a kind of spatial surface of probability of, 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 the, of the reservoir hosts or the secondary hosts. So, that was the kind of susceptibility thing, and this is the actual model. So, this Totally broke UCL. I got told off, actually, by using so much of the CPU time. So we cut um, Africa (laughs) up into one-kilometre grid squares. And in each grid square, we had this really complex model operating. So uh, I showed you before about susceptibles. So they're there. Hello. These are the exposed people here. These are the infectious people. And these are the recovered people. And because Ebola is so absolutely horrendous... Uh, you are still infectious with Ebola two days after you're dead. So this is a funeral compartment. So um, you you don't move, obviously, when you're (laughs) dead, but people move to you for funerals. So um, we wanted to capture that um, exposure compartment. So we have this model operating, and and these uh, parameters for transitions between the compartments are from the literature, from what we know about Ebola. But we've got two forces of zoonotic infection. The first one is from the other people that have got Ebola here, and this zoonotic force of infection here, which is parameterized by our suitability of the landscape for the host and kind of some, some spillover uh, uh, metric that we, we've put in. So you can parameterize all of these things, like with people, suitability of the landscape, the climate, and all of these things into this model, and you can... Um, Get a kind of distribution for present day. Oh, sorry, I forgot about one thing. Make it just a tad more complicated. Uh, we had infectious and exposed people able to move from grid to grid. So we put in the landscape, uh, road networks, and train networks and plane networks with different weightings so that exposed and infectious people could move across these grid squares. So then we ran at the whole thing millions of times. And then you can do it with present-day conditions and then change them for future conditions. So it's a a neat way to start to think and play with some of these uh, systems dynamics. Okay, so again, just a reminder, I didn't put any spatial cases of Ebola into this model. This is generated from first principles about what we know about Ebola spillover and how people are moving and where 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 the hotspots for the sustainability of the landscape for the host. Okay, so these are the actual cases of Ebola that you can't see very well, <laughs> but this is our model in, in terms of suitability of the landscape for an outbreak, uh, and it's a pretty good fit to where we've seen outbreaks. So you, you can't just do a spatial model for Ebola for, just on the number of outbreaks you've got because you've had less than 30. So it's a very difficult disease to, to map, so to validate, but it seems to be doing a job. So this is not just the number of Um, cases is this number of outbreaks and then the subsequent number of cases uh, after that first outbreak so you start you seed your model with an outbreak somewhere and let it that let that run and then you repeat that millions of times so this is the outbreaks and number of cases subsequently this is just the number of outbreaks and then this is the cases which go Really bad. So these are really nasty epidemics. So this is more than 1,500 cases. So these are the really, really awful areas which are at higher risk of, of having an outbreak of a large size. Um, and so um, when, when we start to when we finished that analysis uh, um, six months or so ago, so no, it was a year ago, was, um, this happened in, in, in Congo and there's been a subsequent outbreak in uh, another part of DRC, and these are areas which we think have got a large probability of of going uh, into a very serious and unpleasant epidemic. So, these are really high-risk areas which um, we we need to focus on. So, um, I'm not saying that this is the the be-all and end-all of of modeling Ebola, but it's a really useful way to start to think about the interdependencies of changing these dynamics in terms of ecological dynamics, but also interventions like uh, immunity or vaccination. Okay, so that was present day, and you can start to play with it. So you can look at different future uh, frameworks of of different climate change emission scenarios, but also um, different shared societal economic pathways. So we've come up with different combinations of these in terms of... um, like one where we Brexit, one where we don't do that, and are more cooperative. Uh, fossil fuel development, you know, there's a whole load of different kind of pathways that the, the globe could go down. And then we've got different kind of levels of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so you can change these, um, the, the input scenarios into, uh, into your model and then have a look at what happens. So this is just some of the, kind of outputs that you can get. And I'm not saying that these are all going to happen, but these are interesting ways to think about that, that modeling framework. So we've got, a, you know, a two to three increase in outbreaks given the different scenarios that we have, um, and um, a likelihood of, of more severe epidemics because there are going to be more people, especially in the areas which have got high risk. So, and the risk is very low here, by the way, so it's only 0.008. Okay, so um, just to kind of conclude and and some final remarks. Um, We cannot model uh, diseases and epidemics and spread by just going biodiversity and X. We have to think about how reservoir species and vectors respond to environmental change and fragmentation and anthropogenic pressure. We have to, and those aren't going to be the same. So we've really got to start to understand these um, tipping points in ecological systems that have massive implications for for us. So there's very little work on how things change under different anthropogenic pressures, and I think that needs to, we need to increase our understanding of that. So this is a, please don't tweet this, but um, we submitted this paper uh, by looking at a massive meta-analysis across uh, the planet so this is um, about a million data points, uh, about 600 uh, sites across the planet. And we've looked across these gradients of change. So we've tried to understand how biodiversity, how communities are changing. This is a big meta-analysis. But then out of the proportion of animals which are changing, how, much, how many of those are ones which are zoonotic hosts? So, which ones are capable? What happens to the animals which are capable of spreading a zoonotic disease into humans? What happens to them? And a really frightening statistic is that there's a really big impact of urbanization on the number of uh, zoonotic potential hosts there are. So, these communities shift with anthropogenic pressure. And that could be because we're sharing pathogens with them, or it could be there is something intrinsic about animals which can survive this urbanization anthropogenic pressure filter. So you can see these, this kind of um, pattern uh, re- replicated in the different groups. So only certain groups make it through, bats and rats, passerines. Uh, and you can see how these, um, these, this filter effect of anthropogenic pressure is then causing some of these species to be able to survive here, but then also able to, more, more likely to, um, to pass on uh, an infectious disease. So that's something that we really need to understand more about. Um, okay, so I've tried to emphasize that you, ca- you can't get to some of these questions unless you start to think about it in a systems dynamic way, because things are changing so rapidly that you need to understand those interdependencies within this systems dynamic system. So there are huge new data sets. There are huge new ways based in hierarchical models, machine learning, there are amazing approaches that are being developed to try to understand these systems and these patterns, like a mechanistic mashup with statistical approaches. Just, it's really exciting and amazing what we, what we have to be able to do. And we'd like to spread that to other diseases. So why not? Why don't we look at all of these diseases at once and see? So if you were trying to manage an area for Ebola, you might actually make it more suitable for Lassa fever or for for dengue or chikungunya or whatever. So you need to think about these things as a a whole. So when I look at um, comparative analyses of different diseases, I I found something in one of the top journals in the world. Uh, This is the only thing I could find. This is in the Guardian. <laughs> so, so, this is contagiousness, which is basically R naught, like how, how effective a disease is to the next person, how likely you are to get it. And this is deadliness, which is case fatality rate for those in the know. So, um, you know, if there is one up here, it is here be dragons, because that would be a terrible thing. Uh, it would be very, very contagious and very, very deadly. But most things actually are this way. So they're quite contagious, but they're not very... Uh, or some are very contagious, but not very deadly. So we need to do much more work on this and understand what kind of stuff are we comparatively across. What is the risk between all these infectious diseases that have got such a bad reputation? Like What is the risk, and, and how do they all fit? And why aren't there things up here? Okay, just to find, finally then... We do need more ecological thinking in in understanding our planet, understanding human health, and and, and our futures. And um, we have these 17 amazing sustainability goals, sustainable development goals, and two of those are um, about life on land and life on water. And these are intrinsically linked to these other ones. And so the development community has to recognize how important these are and at the moment, I don't think they do. So this is um, by Natalie Seddon. If you don't know her, you should. You should look her up on Twitter. She's amazing. So she came up with this. Uh, she put this together. So this, some of this spending stuff is, is, is a bit controversial, which she would admit. But this is from the Stockholm Institute Resilience Institute. This is showing you um, our kind of reliance on those sustainability goals. So biosphere is down here. Societal SDGs are up here. Economy. And finally, world peace, right? So when you start to look at how much spending we have on those SDGs, you've got, uh, hmm, where is biosphere? Oh, it's down here. Forests, (laughs) oceans, climate. And then we've got some societal things, which is great. And uh, economy things are, you know, much more, we spend much more stuff on that. And then world peace, i.e. war, we spend a huge amount of, of money on. So there needs to be a radical rethink about how we sort our our environment out, how we manage our planet for both our health and for uh, for planetary health. So just to end on reasons to be cheerful then, number one, there is huge growing evidence about how biodiversity uh, helps ecosystem stability, resilience, and resistance, and that's ever-growing, and I think that body of evidence will help convince policymakers how important it is. Reasons to be cheerful too. There are huge, this is being recognized in the academic literature in terms of people and planet thinking. There's people on the planet, people, human health and, and nature. There's a whole um, new journal by from the Lancet called Planetary Health, so the medics are taking notice of, uh, that this is important. There's one health <laughs> One planet, one few like this, a lot of people are starting to realize that you have to think uh, interdependently to, to sort this out. The economists are paying attention. So this is um, a very famous now uh, tipping point graph of, um, of how we think we're overexploiting different types of bits of the planet. So this is um, climate change, um, biosphere integrity, land system change, And, like, you're supposed to stay within this green stuff, green part here, and we're kind of overextending some of the other parts. Now, um, Kate Raworth, who's a very interesting economist, she wrote a book called Donut Economics a couple of years ago that used that as an inspiration, but instead of having this old-fashioned system of economics where you externalise and have it as externalities all of the things that we depend on, like... Uh, you know, people staying at home looking after babies when somebody else goes to work, or um, uh, the the fact that you're using roads to get to work, or we're using uh, the oxygen which is produced by plants. So she turned that into a donut instead, so that this is the ecological ceiling that we are, and this is the social foundation of our planet and our humanity. And uh, we have different parts of that, and you have to stay within the donut. So I think you know, even George Monbiot approves of that, you know, so um, I think that people starting to change people starting to realise that we just cannot go on like we are in terms of um, exploitation we have to think in a much more sustainable way and live in the donut, and finally this is the editor of the Lancet so he's a very serious medic, right, serious global development person, he's a very serious person, and this is what he said He's not a tree hugger, anything. He talks to the leaders of of the world. If we're concerned about human health, we should also be concerned about the health of the biosphere that we inhabit. It's rare to hear health advocates talk about biodiversity. Health and climate change is now fixed in the lexicon of global and public health. But biodiversity remains largely invisible. It's time to make protecting the biodiversity of our planet the next great cause of planetary health. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at ife.qut. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.